And my instructions today are to make a presentation on the Marxian teaching, teaching on the question of the state. So that nothing is lost in translation, I'm going to make a, give you a summary of my presentation, and then I will get on with the details. This is particularly important because I went to an Indian school and I wasn't taught how to read properly. So when I read, something can be lost, but I want to make my um, four, five, half a dozen <coughs> my points so that you understand what Marx in teaching on the state is. In my view, it's dead simple. But at the same time, there's such a lot of obfuscation on this question as indeed on any other thing. Capitalism exists through, on the one hand, advancing technology to the highest level and then creating mass ignorance uh, as, as, an, as an antidote to that. The Marxian teaching on the state can be summed up as follows. Number one, the state did not, as you found out this morning, always exist and will not always exist. State is a transitional um, institution in the development of humanity from primitive, primitive communism to the higher stage of, of com communism. It came at a time because of the division of society within classes, into classes, between exploiters and the exploited. And the first division was, of course, between slave owners and people who were, uh, who were slaves. And the state was necessary in order to be able to prevent the class antagonisms from gobbling society up, eating society itself up, so that the ruling class could actually use the state as an instrument not only for um, keeping the ruled under control, but also for the purpose of moderating the struggle between the classes. The state, in other words, came into existence, and what is this state? I mean, if, if there is so much um, um, rubbish that is said in the philosophical literature as well as in the political li literature on the question of the state that one doesn't really know where to begin. But the state simply is an organization of violence, an organization of violence by one class in order to hold down another class. That is its chief function. It's like saying, well, what's the function of the police? You might see a policeman taking across old ladies uh, to, to, to cross the road from one side to the other. They might actually be helping little children at school time to go from one end to the other. But that's not the, that's not the policeman's function. The real function of the police is to be part of the state apparatus, the army, the bureaucracy, the police, the judiciary, in order to keep down the uh, oppressed ma masses of people. So it's an organization of, of, of violence. What exactly does the working class need to do with this state? The working class, in order to actually have its own way, have an economic system which is beneficial to it, has got to come to state power. How can it come to state power? In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels simply raised the question, the, the working class must assume state power. It must solve, uh, uh, you know, win the battle of democracy. It must become the ruling class. But the question of how it should become the ruling class is not dealt with. Because Marx and Engels, as Lenin constantly points out, were scientists. They, like natural scientists, looked at the development of, 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 of species and plants and etc. They looked at historical development and came to conclusions on the basis of the data that were supplied by various revolutions. In the Communist Manifesto came literally months before the revolution of 1848 broke out in several European capitals. 
So there was really not much data, but what they did understand was that the working class needed to come to power, it needed to win the battle of democracy, it needed to become the ruling class. But after the revolution of 1848 and resulting in France, which was the most politically advanced country at that time, not economically, but politically the most advanced country, they came to the conclusion that what had to be done was that the state of the... uh, of the bourgeoisie had to be smashed. That all the headed uh, to existing revolution, all the revolution that had proceeded before that, had actually served to strengthen state machine. They had served to uh, make it stronger than, than, than before. And the greatest prize that the winning party in any revolution got was to get hold of this, this, this institution, the state, so that having come to power, they will, they, they will be able to u- u- use, it, use it themselves. So if you destroy the bourgeois state, which Marx and Engels were very keen on describing it as the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, and and following that, Marxist, Leninist, and Lenin, of course, always said, this is the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Even if it's a democratic state, even if it's not a monarchical state, even if it's a republican state, it nevertheless is a state of the bourgeoisie. And in a democracy, no less than in a monarchy, capital, of course, rules and is able to get hold of all the levers of power, irrespective of the change of governments. You can have social democrats succeeded by conservatives, succeeded by liberals, and back again in the same cycle or any other combination. But the bourgeoisie is the one that continues, continues to rule. So having overthrown the state of the exploiters, what must the proletariat put in its place? That is something that Marx and Engels only come to realize after the Paris Commune of 1871. Uh, and what they came to, uh, uh, they, they came to the conclusion that the proletariat needs a state of its own. There's no way that this proletariat can do without the state. I shall later on, in my presentation or during the course of discussion, discuss also the question of differences between anarchism on the one hand and Marxism on the other on the on the question of of, of the state. Because there's a lot of confusion on that. Because anybody who says anything against the state, anybody who wants to smash the state, is described as an anarchist in all the respectable circles, including Trotskyites and revisionists. And what we want to say is there's nothing respectable about that. It is simply either confusing the masses or acting as mercenary agents of imperialism for the purpose of prolonging its life. The working class, having overthrown the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, must have a state of its own. And as Marx said, (coughs) that state can only be the dictatorship of the proletariat. Whereas the function of the proletarian revolution during the revolution is to smash the bourgeois state, the proletariat does not smash the proletarian state. The bourgeois state has to be smashed, but the proletarian state is the one that in the course of its existence withers away as one after another its functions cease to be of any use. It disappears because there's nothing to perform, uh, nothing to do, you know? Like at the end of the day, having done our work, we will go home because there will be nothing left to do. And only lunatics would want to carry on being, being here you know, for, for no reason. Likewise, the state has no functions to perform. And the proletarian state, from the very day that it comes into existence, actually is less than a state. It's the first time in the history of the existence of this institution that a state would be at the disposal of, at the service of the majority of the population to oppress a tiny minority of the population. 
And because the majority are doing the oppressing, it's such an easy task. It doesn't really need the same apparatus. One of the reasons that our states are so powerful, one of the reasons that they are so fierce and they're so armed is that they are, the ruling class is a tiny circle of people with very little social base and they have to oppress such a lot of people, such a lot of literate people, such a lot of intelligent people, such a lot of technologically advanced people, so they are very fierce and that's why they're willing and able and from time to time do drown millions of people in, in blood. It doesn't always happen in imperialist countries. It happens in Iraq, it happens in Afghanistan, it, it happens in, in Vietnam, it happens in Syria, it happens in, in, in Haiti, it happens in myriads of the other, other, other places. But nevertheless, on a world scale, the bourgeois states are oppressing and drowning people, people in blood. But after the spiritual, political, ideological, and most important, economic basis has been created for the disappearance of the state, the state will disappear. It will not disappear overnight. It will go through a prolonged historical period, the, the, the period of the existence of the dictatorship of the proletariat. But nevertheless, it will pave the way for a new and higher society, the higher phase of, phase of, phase of communism. But that will only happen because over generations, new people will be reared up with a new morality. And they would have grown up in a society where there are no antagonistic classes, where you don't actually think that God created man with eyes, ears, nose, and a shop. You know? It, it will no, no longer be necessary to have business people for people to satisfy their needs. Humanity will always need to produce whatever the social system production has to be carry, carried on. But production hasn't got to be carried on on the basis of exploitation of one person by another or one nation by another nation. As Jyoti pointed out this morning, humanity has existed for a very long time. And the period of class society, the period of exploitation of human beings by other human beings and, uh, and countries by other countries is a very limited one. Even if you take the maximum period of this class exploitation, it cannot be more than 10,000. If the history of humanity is anywhere between 100,000 to 200,000, it's a very minuscule part of it. And it's even less of a part of the existence of humanity if you take the future when humanity has got past this horribly exploit ex exploitative system. So the economic conditions would have to be created, and the economic conditions will only be created when there is such an expansion of the uh, production of society resulting from the very increased productivity of labor, that it is perfectly possible, it's perfectly possible for, for people to have their demand satisfied and bring into operation a formula, each according to his ability, to each according to his need. You, you could get from the public store, from the public funds, whatever you needed. And you didn't have, wouldn't have to justify in the circumstances that you have worked for it or that you have deserved it, etc. So that, that's really basically the Marxian teaching on state. I've, I've given you a, a summary of it. I'll give you the details. And at any moment, if you say you're bored and you don't want to listen to it, just tell me and I'll just go quietly and wither away. <laughs> I mean, the question is obviously of, of great significance from the point of view of the proletariat that is fighting to overthrow the system of exploitation. 
And Lenin not only made it his business, in a revolutionary period, literally a few months uh, before the October Revolution, two or three months before the October Revolution. I mean, it's amazing how he could have found all the sources and quotations, etc., hiding in a workman's house somewhere outside Petersburg to be able to write, write this book. We, living in our very comfortable circumstances with central heating on libraries around, find it difficult to write a single article. And here he, here he is writing this brilliant, brilliant pamphlet. And he considered the question of state so important that he left everything to write this, this, this particular um, pamphlet. And in the preface to that pamphlet, he says, the struggle for the emancipation of the toiling masses from the influence of the bourgeoisie in general and of the imperialist bourgeoisie in particular is impossible without a struggle against opportunist prejudices concerning the state. So we are not really doing these um, courses. The, the Creative Development Committee have organized this, this session, not so that we can actually indulge in a study circle for scholastic reasons, which makes us better able to uh, flaunt Marxian phrases and talk about, oh, yes, I know something about the state, state, state too. It is really, our study is always directed towards achieving practical activity. It's done as a guide to action. Our theory is not sterile. It's not just for becoming clever debaters. It is so that we can actually do our work better. So the first point that I made, and I not, and like to uh, substantiate it further with uh, utterances of the founders of socialism and occasionally by Lenin. The state hasn't always existed and will not always exist. It is a transitional historical category which is the product and the manifestation of the irreconcilability of class antagonism. <coughs> this is what Engels said in the book that was um, much discussed in the earlier session. The state is therefore by no means a power forced on society from without. Just as little it is the reality of the ethical idea, the image and reality of reason, as Hegelians maintain. Rather it's a product of society at a certain stage of development. It is the admission that this society has become entangled in an insoluble contradiction within itself that it's cleft into irreconcilable antagonisms which it is powerless to dispel. But in order that these antagonisms, classes with conflicting economic interests, might not consume themselves in society in sterile struggle, a power seemingly standing above society became necessary for the purpose of moderating the conflict, of keeping it within the bounds of order, and this power arisen out of society but placing itself above it and increasingly increasingly alienating itself from it is the state. That's from the origin of the family. The, if, the, if, if, if state is the product of irreconcilable class antagonisms, then the second proposition of Marxism is that in the struggle for its emancipation, the proletariat also needs a state. Why does it need a state? First of all, the function of that state, the proletarian state, would be to crush the resistance of the exploiters. Its first, second function would be to prevent them from making attempts at restoration of capitalism. And its third function would be to make sure that the economy of the proletarian state is organized in a way which helps it propel along the road to the higher stages of communism. 
And Lenin, Lenin goes on to say that this teaching of Marxism on the question of state, this definition of the state, has never been explained in the prevailing propaganda and agitation literature of the official social democratic parties. For the uh, uh, sake of younger comrades, I'd say communist parties before the First World War were called social democratic parties. There's a historical reason for it. Marx and Engels considered it was the wrong name. As, as Lenin comments upon it, Engels was a dialectician to the last. Engels maintained, Marx and I had a perfectly good scientific name for the, for the party of the working class. But we didn't have a party of the working class. Now, there are mass working class parties, particularly in Germany, which had one million mem members in it. And we haven't got a right name for the party. But never mind, it will pass muster as long as the party does not uh, uh, depart from the line, line, line of scientific socialism. So Lenin says this has never been explained. More than that, it has been deliberately forgotten for it's absolutely irreconcilable with reformism and a slap in the face of common opportunist prejudices and Philistine illusions about the peaceful development of democracy. Um, that is in state, state, state and revolution. So the proletarian state, of course, can only come into existence by smashing the bourgeois state. And therefore, the bourgeois state has to be smashed. The bourgeois state cannot be talked out of existence. It's not like you and I disagree with each other and we can have a debate. And if we don't agree today, maybe we agree next week or the next month or the year after. But there is nevertheless a comradely, friendly discussion between us we can have. But when it comes to dealing with the bourgeois state, the bourgeois state has no intention of disappearing from the scene just because its time is up. It's not like an apple that by the laws of gravity, when it's ripe, it must fall to the ground whether somebody's there to pull it, pull it down or not. In class society, the class that is historically out of date, whose time is up, who has no historical right to exist, but nevertheless exists politically, and it puts up resistance through the exploiters, their army, their bureaucracy, their judiciary, and their police, and every other institution they have to maintain, their parliament, if, if, if you like. And therefore, it will not go away. For getting rid of it, it is absolutely necessary that the proletariat, instead of being guided by illusions of peaceful uh, progress uh, of democracy, should actually believe that this state will only be got rid of by a violent revolution. And Engels had this to say in, 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 in his <coughs> anti-during, arguing against uh, had during on various questions, then on this question, the question of state and how the bourgeois state has to be got rid of, Engels emphasizes the use of force in such eloquent terms that it, it actually, in Lenin's words, becomes, do you say panegyric? A panegyric, panegyric, whatever. It's a hymn, hymn really, hymn of praise, if you, if you like. This is what Engels said. That force, however, plays another role, other than that of a diabolical power in history, a revolutionary role, that in the words of Marx, it's the midwife of every old society which is pregnant with the new, that it's the instrument by the aid of which the social movement forces its way through and shatters the dead, fossilized political forms. Of this, there is not a word in her during. 
It's only with sighs and groans that he admits the possibility that force will perhaps be necessary for the overthrow of the economic system of exploitation. Unfortunately, because all use of force for soothe demoralizes the person who uses it. And this in spite of the immense moral and spiritual impetus which has resulted from every victorious revolution. And this in Germany, where a violent collision, which indeed may be forced on the people, would at least have the advantage of wiping out the civility which has permeated the national consciousness as a result of the humiliation of the Thirty Years' War. And this Parson's mode of thought, lifeless, insipid, impotent, claims to impose itself on the most revolutionary party which history, history has known. I mean, Engels talks of the moral and spiritual impetus that a revolution gives. I, as somebody who originated from India, can actually corroborate from personal experience, compare China with India. The difference, because the Chinese revolution cleansed up and wiped off the face of the earth the old feudal decadent society, and China could start on a new basis. Notwithstanding certain things that are taking in place in China, which neither, neither of our lives, the Chinese society is qualitatively at a far higher level of existence than the, than, than the Indian, in Indian society. And you, uh, on any level of development, on any level of, you, you know, status of people in that society, you, you can find that out. And it doesn't really matter. Uh, the revisionists and Trotskyites and social democrats sing the praises of democratic uh, societies even monarchical democratic societies, if you like. But Engels was very clear that no matter how democratic a state of the ruling class, of the bourgeoisie may be, it is nevertheless organized violence against the majority of the oppressed, of, of the oppressed people. It still is a rule of the, of the tiny minority of exploiters who exploit the masses and who hide their exploitation with the democratic facade. In a democratic republic, Engels says, wealth exercises its power indirectly but all the more surely, first by means of direct corruption of officials, as in America, and this an American habit has now uh, spread to all the capitalist countries. You know, direct bribing of officials is very common uh, every, everywhere. I think even social democratic Sweden might have some of it. Second, by means of an alliance between the government and the, and, 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 and the, and the stock exchange, <coughs> especially in the, in the era of imperialism, it's not just a question of stock exchange. There's a merging of the state machine with monopoly capitalist rule, ru, ruling cliques. The real, the, the real reason why the omnipotence of wealth is better secured in a democratic republic is that it does not depend on the faulty political shell of capitalism. A democratic republic is the best possible political shell for capitalism, and therefore, once capital has gained control of this very best shell, um, it establishes its power so securely, so firmly, that no change either of persons or of institutions or of parties in the bourgeois democratic republic can shake it. And universal suffrage, as far as Engels was concerned, is an instrument of bourgeois rule. And all that it can function for the working class uh, under the conditions of capitalism, universal suffrage, that is, is that it can act as a maturity, uh, sorry, as a gauge of the maturity of the working class. If the working class parties do well, it means working class people who vote for a working class party are mature enough to do so. But to actually think <coughs> that voting could bring the proletariat to power is a pie in the sky. That was the view of Engels, 
that, uh, that was the view of Marx and that was the view of Lenin and following him is the view of any proletarian revolutionary and it's only the mummies of the revisionist parties and the Trotskyites uh, counter-revolutionaries who will tell you all you need to do is to vote a social democratic party which means labor party in this country and by God they'll usher in socialism through the parliament now this statement is not even relatively false it is absolutely false Labour Party is not a socialist party. Labour Party has no interest in ushering in socialism. Socialism cannot be ushered through parliament. Let us say that all the 650 odd members of parliament are members of the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist. They pass a law which says all private property is excluded hereby. Under the bourgeois constitution, that law must be approved by Her Majesty the Queen. A relic of feudal time, but ahead of the bourgeois state. You think the Queen is going to sign? Queen is nominally the commander-in-chief of all the British forces. She will call some general and say, could you take these 650 loonies out of there and, and lodge them in some local dungeon where they belong? And that would be the end of our experience in parliamentary revolutionary activity. And therefore we must not fool the people into thinking that that is what is going to be happen happening. The next point that Marxism makes on the question of the state, or what Marxism teaches on the question of state, is that whereas all previous revolutions, that is the revolution before the proletarian revolution, have perfected the state machine, the task of the proletarian revolution, however, is to destroy, break, smash. These are the words used by Marx and Engels. They sound much better in German um, than, than, than they do. Destroy, break, and smash really doesn't have the same meaning as the, as, as, as the German, German words, words have. This is um, what Marx uh, said after the experience of the 1848 to 1855, 51 revolutions. But the revolution is thoroughgoing. It's still journeying through purgatory. Purgatory, I'm told by my religious friends, is the area between hell and heaven, somewhere in between. It does its work methodically. By December the 2nd, 1851, the day of Louis Bonaparte's coup d'etat, it had completed one half of its preparatory work. It's now completing the other half. First, it perfected the parliamentary power in order to be able to overthrow it. Now, it has attained, now that it has attained this, it perfects the executive power, reduces it to its purest expression, isolates it, sets it up against itself as the sole target in order to concentrate all its forces, that is, revolution's forces, of destruction against it. And when it has done this second half of its preliminary work, Europe will leap from its seat and exultantly exclaim, well grubbed old mole. <laughs> you know, before, before this work could be completed, before actually the state could be smashed, it had to be perfected. It had to alienate itself from society. It had to become really oppressive so that everybody hated it. And when that proprietary work had been done, then the revolt of the people, the revolutionary tide of the people will smash it, and Europe will be able to exclaim exultantly, well-grubbed old mole. Well, I think the reference is, I think moles work underground till they come to the surface. The surface, is, is, is that right? I've never understood that expression. Well, that, that, well, well, that's ba ba basically what it is. It really is that the revolutionary movement goes almost underground for a long time, and nothing happens for 10, 15, 20, 20 years, and then suddenly 
there is a burst of activity which sweeps away the old regime, the old order, and obviously people can then say, wonderful, hasn't been great. In other words, the, 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 the purpose of, of Marx and Engels writing that, uh, and this is a conclusion of the 1848-51 revolution, and uh, you find these conclusions of Marx's in his excellent pamphlet, 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon. And so the conclusion that suggests itself from that revolutionary period is um, that all previous revolutions have perfected the state machine the task of the proletarian revolution is to concentrate all its forces of destruction against it. And the truth of the above analysis was obviously very brilliantly confirmed by the Paris Commune. And summing up the Paris Commune, Marx and Engels wrote, one thing specially was proved by the Commune, that the working class, this has been subject to dispute recently, that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the, hold of the ready-made state machine and wield it for its own purposes. And the way the revisionists have over decades interpreted, it cannot simply lay hold of it, but it can lay hold of it, whatever you can make, make of that. But whereas Marx and Engels are saying is, it cannot simply lay hold of it. It's, not, it's a lumber. It's not a state that they can use for their own purposes. It's useless for the purposes of the proletariat. The proletariat have got to smash the state and put something better that will serve its, its own ends. This conclusion was so important to Marx and Engels that they actually introduced it as an amendment to the Communist Manifesto. The uh, last uh, um, preface of the, of the Manifesto was signed by both the authors together in 1872, and that is the conclusion they, they reach, that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the old state, state machine. Next, Marxism teaches that having stained, uh, smashed the bureaucratic military machine of the bourgeoisie, the proletariat must establish a state of its own, i.e. the dictatorship of the proletariat. And this is a quotation from Marx's um, letter to Braque, which, has, which when published was published under the name of Critique of the Gotha Program, which reminds me of something funny. There used to be a leader of the, of the CPB, and he went around a bookstall and he saw a critic of the Gotha program. He said, I must read that Gotha bloke one, one of these days. It was my kicks, I'm, to, I'm told whether it's right or not, I don't know. I must read that Gotha bloke. Uh, Gotha program was the program of the German Social Democratic Party, which they agreed on at a place in Germany called Gotha, uh, where the um, followers of Marx and Engels who were known as Eisenachers, which Eisenach is another place in Germany, made concessions to the Lasallians and came up with a program which was accepted by the United Party, which was called the Gotha Program, which was a sellout of their principles. And Engels said, we've been done, because there was no need to make these concessions because of the Congress, we were in a majority. Why were we making concessions? But anyway, the concessions were made, and Marx and Engels were furious, and, Eng and Marx wrote a critique of the Gotha program and dispatched it. And it wasn't published by the German Social Democratic Party for a whole 15 years. They wouldn't let the party comrades know what, what, what Marx had written. Obviously, opportunism had been making great inroads in, in the German 
Social Democratic Party, Party at that time. And in that particular document, in that particular letter, Marx wrote, between capitalist and communist society lies the period of the revolutionary transformation of one into the other. There corresponds to this also a political transition period in which the state can be nothing but the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. During the, the, the this is this is the this is the the, the Gotha program. But during the the Paris Commune itself, the first revolutionary uh, proletarian state established by the, by the proletariat, even if it lasted <coughs> about three months, nevertheless it was of such fundamental importance that Marx and Engels regarded it as a tremendous experiment in working class seizing power and putting into place certain measures which gave guidance for the future course of activity of the working class. And all the revolutionaries since then have paid tremendous attention to the uh, Paris Commune. Just as before the Paris Commune, even the proletarian revolutionaries paid great heed to the lessons of the great French Revolution of the 1789. Of course, the Paris Commune is but a child's play compared with the October Revolution. If we have so much to learn from the Paris Commune, you can just imagine how much more we have to learn from the October Revolution. And people who go on and on about the Paris Commune while ignoring the lessons of the October Revolution have very ulterior motives. It's not that they honor the Paris Commune, which deserves to be honored. It is something that we need to respect. But the October Revolution is <coughs> of a completely different dimension. The difference between the, the Paris Commune and the October Revolution is really between a local riot and a worldwide revolutionary storm, if you like. The October Revolution has changed the world in a way that nothing else has before, before or since, and it will continue to guide coming generations and, and rev revolutionary movements. And during the Paris Commune, Marx wrote a letter to his friend Kugelmann, he said, if you look at the last chapter of my 18th Brumaire, you will find that I say that the next attempt of the French Revolution will be no longer as before to transfer the bureaucratic military machine from one to another, but to smash it. And this is the preliminary condition for every real people's revolution on the continent. And this is what our heroic party comrades in Paris are attempting to do. So Marx's idea is to smash the bureaucratic military machine, not to elect a labor government to usher in so, so, so socialism. No socialism can be uttered without um, smashing the old state machine. Now this is a subject which is controversial and which always um, makes us few enemies. And I would say now is not the time to make new enemies. But there are people who, who will tell you Yes, this was the case somewhere else, but it really is no longer the case because the Latin Americans, for example, have found a new way of doing, th doing things and they can go on to socialism without smashing the old bureaucratic machine. I continue to assert, following Marx, Engels and Lenin, that no matter how long it takes them, unless and until they actually smash the bureaucratic state machine of the bourgeoisie, which has connections with imperialism, innumerable connections with imperialism, no proper socialism can be built. Certain progressive measures can be taken, 
They can be taken by bourgeois governments, by radical petty bourgeois government, or even governments with a socialist and proletarian orientation, but they can only go thus far and no further. The old bureaucratic state machine has got to be smashed. Marx then carries on in the same letter, and now I come to myself, which reminds me of something completely different. I'm going to. Now I come to myself. No credit is due to me for discovering the existence of classes in modern society, nor yet the struggle between them. Long before me, bourgeois historians had described the historical development of this struggle of the classes, and bourgeois economists the economic anatomy of the classes. What I did that was new was to prove this. One, that the existence of classes is only bound up with particular historical phases in the development of production. In other words, classes were not always there, and they won't be always there, something that we learned from Jyoti this morning. Secondly, that the class struggle necessarily leads to the dictatorship of the proletariat. And thirdly, that the dictatorship itself only constitutes the transition to the abolition of all classes and to a classless society. In other words, we're not so enamored of the state that we want to keep it forever. State will disappear. Not, it will not, the, the proletarian state will disappear. It will wither away. It will cease to exist. It will cease to exist of itself. And we are neither able to keep it nor are we able to dis dispense it. But as long as it is there, the proletariat uses the proletarian state not the, in, the, in the interest of freedom, but in the interest of suppressing its oppon opponents. Under the proletarian state, there is freedom and there is democracy for the overwhelming majority. But there's no freedom and there is no democracy for the tiny minority, who now find that there's no freedom if for no other reason they've got to work like everybody else. Their paradise is gone because they have to work for a living. Can you think of something more horrible than having to work for a living? <laughs> well, the bourgeoisie's idea of living and living well is never having to work. You know, under socialism, no one eats if they don't work. Under capitalism, only those who eat well who don't work, apart from the unemployed who are given that state. But the ruling class is such Sorry? No, no, exactly. But, but the thing is that under socialism, there would be no idealism. One of the things that is thrown at in our faces is, ah, oh, well, socialism is for the lazy so-and-sos. Nobody will have to work. They'll just, just collect their social security. They'll collect their education and whatnot. They don't have to work. The society goes to rot. Not at all. Socialist society is characterized by the strictest labor discipline, by making sure that people will do their work. That is precisely why in the first phase of the communist society only one un injustice is done away with, the injustice of private ownership of the means of production. They are got rid of. So means of production become the, um, the property of the entire people, not of a few individuals. So nobody is able to exploit anybody else. Nobody is able to hire laborers. To that extent, that injustice is done. But there is another injustice. You work according to your ability and you get paid for the work that, that you've done. But this is an injustice. One person is stronger than the other. One person is married and the other one is not. One person is married with ten children, another one hasn't. So you get the same wages for the same work. Somebody unmarried comes and has, has a riotous time. And somebody's got ten children, he's got to bring up ten children. But at that stage of development of the, of the 
uh, society's productive forces, it's not possible to have any other measure. So you have to enforce that measure. And for every enforcement of such a right, and it's a bourgeois right, there has to be a state. So the proletarian state, in a sense, is a bourgeois state without the bourgeoisie. You know? Now that's a conundrum. If you talk to somebody else, if Stalin had said something, he'll, he'll be attacked by every top and saipani social democrat or whoever else. But this is what Marx and Engels say, and this is what Lenin says. We have a bourgeois state without the bourgeoisie. A bourgeois state because it enforces this right, which is still unjust, which, is, which has not yet, re, uh, uh, which is practiced in a state which hasn't ye, yet reached the stage of half phase, phase of communism. So the dictatorship of the proletariat is absolutely uh, uh, essential. And Lenin says, those who recognize only the class struggle are not yet Marxists. They may be found to be well within the boundaries of bourgeois thinking and bourgeois politics. You know, classes, class struggle, this has been talked about long before Marx and Engels by bourgeois historians and bourgeois economists. So just because you recognize classes and class struggle, it doesn't make you a Marxist. It doesn't make you make you a communist. And Lenin goes on to say, only he is a Marxist who extends the recognition of the class struggle to the recognition of the dictatorship of the proletariat. You are a communist if you recognize that the proletariat needs its own dictatorship, which can only come about by smashing the dictatorship of, of, of the bourgeoisie. And that is what separates you from every petty as well as big bourgeois. The dictatorship of the proletariat is not something that lasts a few days, a few weeks. I have read a lot of books where the bourgeois spivs and scrap metal dealers, professors, and liberal intellectuals come and say, well, Marx and Engels had said the state will wither away after the classes have been abolished. But the Soviet state keeps on getting stronger. Well, it's either they're so ignorant that it's not worthwhile arguing with them, or they're simply mercenary defenders, defenders of imperialism. What they want is the work, for the working class, having one power, to lay down its arms, allow the restoration of capitalism to, to, to take place, and carry on merrily as ever before. And that's why Lenin, in his left-wing uh, communism and infantile disorder, has this to say on the dictatorship of the, of the proletariat. The dictatorship of the proletariat is a most determined and most ruthless war waged by the new class against a more powerful enemy, the bourgeoisie, whose resistance is increased tenfold by its overthrow, even if it is in one country, and whose power lies not only in the strength of international capital, in the strength and durability of the international connections of the bourgeoisie, but also in the force of habit, in the strength of small production. For all these reasons, the dictatorship of the proletariat is essential, and victory over the bourgeoisie is impossible without a long, stubborn, and desperate war of life and death, a war demanding, the, demanding perseverance, discipline, firmness, uh, sorry, firmness, indomitableness, and unity of will. So it's, it's, not, it's not an easy task. And it's precisely because the ideas, uh, uh, because of the distortion of the teachings of Marxian state, on, uh, uh, Marxian, uh, Marxism on the question of state, that the Soviet state fell. You know, as soon as the Christians had come to power, the 20th Party Congress, they said there is no dictator of the proletariat. Because the Soviet society has reached such levels of development, it has become a state of the whole people at a time when they were embezzlers, fiddlers, 
corrupt agents of imperialism, people who were trying to make a fast buck at the expense of, of, of Soviet people, while they were stashing money away, the Khrushchevites are taking attention away from that phenomenon instead of curing it and using the dictatorship of the proletariat to stamp down harshly on the activities of, of these ambassadors and fiddlers and thieves and fraudsters. They say, we are a state of the whole people, including, of course, of these fraudsters. So it's very, very important indeed to, to get the idea that the proletariat needs the state and it needs it in the interest, not of freedom, but in the interest of suppressing the exploiters, or would-be exploiters, people who want to restore, restore uh, capital. Of course, there is a difference between Marxism and anarchism. <coughs> the difference is not that whereas the anarchists want to smash the state, we don't. No, that is commonality. Anarchists want to smash the state, Marxists also want to smash the state. On that, there is no difference between anarchism. And an anarchist, honest anarchism, anarchist, is a thousand times better friend of the proletariat than these dishonest revisionists who want to usher in, usher in socialism through Labour Party getting a majority in Parliament with one or two revisionist MPs as, as well, of course. You know, you've got to be an alliance between the ant and the elephant, if you like. So, um, there, there, is, there is no difference on that. What really distinguishes between Marxism and anarchism is that whereas Marxism says after the overthrow of the bourgeoisie, the proletariat needs the state of its own. That state has some very important functions to perform. That state alone can guarantee that the victory of the proletariat at the barricades was not a one-day wonder, but a long period during which the socialist state would make sure that the exploiters are got rid of, that restoration of capitalism does not take place, and that economic conditions are prepared for the forward march, 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 march of society. Anarchists want to disband the state straightway. Marx was so angry at them that Marx <coughs> wrote an article in which he says, if the political struggle of the working class assumes revolutionary forms, and he does that by way of ridiculing the anarchists for the repudiation of politics, if the workers set up their revolutionary dictatorship in place of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, they commit the terrible crime of violating principles. For in order to satisfy their wretched, vulgar, everyday needs, in order to crush the resistance of the bourgeoisie, they give the state the revolutionary and transient, transient form instead of laying down their arms and abolishing the state. Um, you can't put it more contemptuously and more angrily, if, if, you, if you like. Engels, who wrote a pamphlet called Bakuninists at work. It was obviously directed against followers of Bakunin, who was one of the fathers of um, uh, anarchism. After, after uh, Proudhon, he was the most prominent uh, uh, anarchist. Uh, Russia had this distinction of producing the best Marxists as well as the best, best anarchists, if you like. Engels um, expounds his ideas on this question of anarchism in a very popular style. First of all, he ridicules um, their muddled ideas um, and, and uh, these anarchists, uh, followers of Proudhon, Proudhon is generally considered as the father of, uh, of anarchism, although I am told that uh, Proudhon was basically following the writings of Max Turner. Am I right in, uh, in Deborah? Yeah. Deborah is our expert on Turner. 
Sterner. Sterner. Yeah. They call themselves anti-authoritarian. Um, and they repudiated every form of authority, every form of subordination, every form of power. And Engel says, take a factory, a railway, a ship on the high seas. Is it not clear that not one of these complex technical establishments, based on employment of machinery and the planned operation of many people, could function without a certain amount of subordination and, consequently, without a certain amount of authority or power? I continue with Engels. When I submitted arguments like these to the most rabid anti-authoritarians, the only answer they were able to give me was the following. Yes, that is true, but here it's not a case of authority which we confer on our delegates, but of a commission entrusted. <laughs> Engels says, these gentlemen think that when they have changed the names of things, they have changed the things themselves. And he goes on to say, and literally is, is, is a tour de force, have these gentlemen ever seen a revolution? A revolution is certainly the most authoritarian thing there is. It is the act whereby one part of the population imposes its will upon the other part by means of rifles, bayonets and cannon. Authoritarian means, if such be there at all. And if the victorious party does not want to have fought in vain, it must maintain this rule by means of the terror which its arms inspire in the reactionaries. Now, I hear a lot of things said against Stalin. He exercised, during his time, the proletarian state exercised the terror which, which its arms inspired in the, uh, in the reactionaries. But nobody ever has said a word against Engels or Lenin. They're just pre presented as cuddly little avuncular figures, you know, <laughs> Who, who simply brought you toys at Christmas and sweets and on, at, at Easter or something, and everything's fine, whereas the horrible Stalin did, did this and the other. But no, Stalin was following nobody other than the founders of Marxism. Would the Paris Commune, says Engels, have lasted a single day if it had not made use of this authority of the armed people against the bourgeoisie? Should we not, he says, by way of criticism, on the contrary, reproach it for not having used it freely enough, Therefore, either one of two things. Either the anti-authoritarians don't know what they're talking about, in which case they are creating nothing but confusion, or they do know, and in that case, they are betraying the movement of the proletariat. In either case, they serve reaction. The next point of the teaching of Marxism on the question of state is that the dictatorship of the proletariat will wither away. It will not be abolished. Um, this is a point that uh, has been stressed all this morning, and I have uh, said, said it said it a uh, number, number of times earlier. So what I will do on this point is give you uh, a quotation from Engels, and this is from Antidurin. As soon as there is no longer any class of society to be held in subjection, as soon as, along with, the, with class domination and struggle of it for individual existence based on anarchy of production hitherto, the collisions and excesses arising from these have also been abolished. There is nothing more to be repressed which would make a special repressive force a state necessary. The first act in which the state really comes forward as representative of society as a whole, the taking possession of the means of production in the name of society, is at the same time its last independent act as a state. The interference of the state in one uh, in social relations becomes superfluous 
in one sphere after another and then ceases of itself. This, these are the words to be used. Ceases of itself. The government of persons is replaced by administration of things and the direction of the processes of, processes of production. The state is not abolished, it withers away. The bourgeois state is abolished, but state as such is not abolished, it withers away. It is from this point that we must appraise the phrase free people state, both its temporary justification for agitational purposes and its ultimate scientific inadequacy, and also the demand of the so-called anarchists that the state should be abolished overnight. So Marxism position is the revolution alone can abolish the bourgeois state, the state in general, the most complete democracy can only wither away. One other point that I'd like to make is this, the, the position of Marxism is not only that the state, proletarian state withers away, with it democracy withers away as well. Now that sounds like a conundrum. If you say to people you're working for a society where democracy will disappear, so you say you are really getting rid of the uh, the principle that minority will submit to the majority. No, we're not. We are neither trying to get rid of representative institutions, nor are we trying to say that the will of the majority should prevail. But democracy is also a form of state. If the state disappears, then obviously a state that is a, the most pure expression of democracy will also wither away. You don't have a function for it. It will cease of itself. It will be a society in which people would have learned from birth to behave in a certain way which does not require special repression. It does not require the most democratic form of repressive and coercive institution to be able to control, to con control people. And on, after the withering of, uh, on the question of the withering away, Engels then says, the state then, and this is a quotation you probably might have heard before, the state then has not existed from all eternity. There have been societies that did without it, that had no conception of the state and state power. At a certain stage of economic development, which was necessarily bound up with the cleavage of society into classes, the state becomes a necessity owing to this cleavage. We are now rapidly approaching a stage in the development of production at which the existence of these classes not only will not have ceased to be a necessity, but will become a positive hindrance on production. They will fall as inevitably as they rose at an earlier stage. Along with them, the state will inevitably fall. The society that will organize production on the basis of a free and equal association of producers will put the whole machinery of the state where it belongs, Museum of Antiquities. Comrades, there are many things that I haven't touched upon, hopefully in the discussion that you would be able to bring them up and we'll be able to discuss the various phases of, of, of communism, the lower phase of communism, the higher phase of communism, how to get rid of bureaucracy and all the rest of it. I've deliberately not done it so as not to prolong my presentation to unbearably um, long di di dimensions. All I will say, it has been a summary, a very brief summary. Anybody who wants to know really well about the teachings of Marxism on the question of state, I would say that they make a proper study of the Communist Manifesto, the origin of the family private property in the state by Engels, the critique of the Goethe program by Marx, anti-during by Engels, 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte by Marx, the civil war in France by Marx, and state and revolution by Lenin. 
and only when you have done these and not study once, make sure every year you study these works again and and again and again. This is the only way for you to renew your knowledge. Thank you. For, thank you for listening to me.